I'm Alex Marlowe, Editor-in-Chief of Breitbart News, and this is the Breitbart News Daily Podcast. Today, we begin the show with a breakdown of Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter and some other media news, including CNN's pathetic ratings, despite the fact that we're only two weeks from an election. And then we get into all of the latest political updates, which you won't want to miss. It does feel as though the red wave is upon us. Very exciting times. And I think uh, the opening will get you jacked up. We have two guests today, Ken Falk, who is the founder and CEO of Boulder Crest Foundation. He's a 21-year combat veteran of the U.S. Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal Division, which is amazing stuff, really brave guy. He's got an unbelievable story, but he also does work on behalf of people who really need it, first responders, particularly those who've gone through a trauma and uh, it's an inspirational conversation, definitely one of my favorites of the year. And then we speak to Robert Cahaley, senior strategist and pollster of the Trafalgar Group, which might be the best pollsters around. Sounds like a good show to me. Let's get into it. something that I have not done in many shows, which is I'm going to start with a non-political story, though in a way, just like everything else, uh, is wildly political in some ways, uh, which is that uh, Elon Musk has now owns Twitter. So this is very significant for journalists in particular. Journalists, as you know, that is their favorite of the social media platforms, and all of them are you know the, the repulsive to one degree or another but for whatever reason twitter is the one where most of the journalists have congregated left right or center and uh it has been under attack from these anti-free speech woke mob and they had control and they had control officially until yesterday and let's see if they're able to retain control uh elon musk famously bid for twitter in what appeared to be a joke a troll where he offered 54 dollars and 20 cents and we know it's a joke because he included in that random number 420 in it which is an homage to marijuana smoking which elon musk thinks is hilarious and uh, it looked like the deal was um a kind of a lowball offer until all of a sudden we learned that twitter is mostly bots and we learned or at least half bots where it's not real people on it which means that all of the retweets and likes that you may or may not be getting are not real in a lot of cases and then once this came out then um all of a sudden it looked like must be was way too high and Musk tried to pull out, but was not able to do it for reasons that are probably more complicated than I could relay on the show, being that I'm not a lawyer, but I'm, I'm happy to ask one on the show. It's really important to all of you. If not, you can uh, do as Joe Biden says, hold on, I want to play this. This is important. We got to play cut seven. This is what Joe Biden recommends. You can Go. look it up. You can, as my used to say, you can Google it. As my used to say, you can Google it. All right. So uh, you can do that if you, if you like. So, but anyway, uh, Musk could not get out of the deal for whatever reason, and um, so now he's got it. Now he owns Twitter, and this will be an interesting moment for free speech because this is the best shot that people who like free speech have had to restore it. 
So the he did the first moves he made were uh, significant and important. He fired the CEO Parag Agrawal, which was a no-brainer. He fired the CFO Ned Siegel, which is also a no-brainer because Twitter doesn't really earn any money. It's the Twitter is financially, I don't even know how they stay afloat. In considering how many people are on the platform, that is pretty pathetic, but they've just not figured out a way to make money. And so firing the chief financial officer seems like a, a no-brainer. Um, and so those should have happened almost instantly. But the other one, which is a really good sign, is the chief legal counsel, Vijaya Gaddy, also got fired. And she is the person who's really in charge of woke enforcement. Uh, I don't get the impression Parag Agrawal wakes up in the morning, the CEO of Twitter, and thinks about stifling free speech. I don't think he thinks about free speech at all. That's not a good thing for someone who was the CEO of a platform that is a major town square in the digital age. But I don't really think he cared. I think he is a guy who comes from a background where he's only surrounded himself with woke tech people. And I don't think he's a lot of loyalty to this country, the United States of America. I don't think he has any loyalty to our Constitution. And he just became the guy who was censoring people because he thought it was better for business. And um, so he had to go, of course. But Vijaya Gaddy, who is the chief legal counsel, is deeply committed to censorship. She is the one who is the most committed to making sure that people who she thinks are too spicy are not on their platform. And of course, by spicy, meaning you know anything that is uh, offends the woke sensibilities. So she's gone. So that is a good sign. Uh, and the report is, at least according to President Trump himself, he'll be back on the platform, which will be interesting. Those of you who are rooting for Truth Social. Um, but who's going to get allowed back on? And if they do get allowed back on, does this mean is this good news for Parler or Getter or Gab? Maybe it's bad news for those places. Um, but it is one where I, I uh, the, the Babylon Bee not back on yet, but I, I can't imagine they're stay they're kept off. They got kicked off in March for making a joke about men being men and women being women. Which I told them like a couple of weeks after, you're going to have to delete that tweet or you're never going to get back on. Well, I, I didn't necessarily anticipate that their friend Elon Musk was going to buy the platform. So still, I don't know, seven months of no momentum for a, a website is, is tough. It's tough to endure. So, but that'll be interesting to see when that happens, and it, I assume it will. But what do you do with people like Kanye? Kanye is saying things that is in a in a purely free speech setting, um, you shouldn't get kicked off of platforms for that. Because if you believe in free speech, you believe that you can say whatever horrible stuff you want. Kanye says horrible things, but does this mean you're not allowed on the platform? And then if it's assuming Kanye is kept off the platform, even though he and Musk are friends, then um, how can you maintain you're really a free speech platform? And then if Kanye is put back on the platform, then how can you tell advertisers this is a safe space for you to advertise, which was Musk's big pitch. He put out a big statement. It's several pages long, so I won't read it all. Um, but it's on, most of it's on the front page of Breitbart in our story right now. But he told the advertisers that this will not be a free-for-all hellscape. So that means it's really his subjective opinion what free speech matters. A guy who is, I, I have no idea if he's 
even read the Constitution, much less has any sense of the importance of the First Amendment. I think he likes the idea of free speech. He said enough positive stuff about it. But he also likes the idea of making money. He's in a, a, a preternatural ability to generate money. World's richest man, at least if you look at his balance sheet, um, including you know, stock portfolio and ownership shares of things. Uh, but is he, he has to understand that if you allow pure free speech in this current environment, that's not going to optimize revenue. So if you're trying to optimize revenue, can you do both? You can't. The answer is you can't. So that's why my prediction is this will not go that great. But for a moment in time, we will celebrate because the old guard is out and free, the speech got a little more freer in the United States. But um, uh, my, my hopes are, are muted. Overall, this is a good thing, even though you guys know that there's not uh, very few people who are more skeptical of um, Musk the conservative than uh, I am. I, I don't really buy it. But let's see what he can do. Let's see what he can do. And I will follow up to note that uh, CNN, which is seeing abysmal ratings, is uh, uh, going to have another round of, of layoffs. They announced that there's going to be a lot of cost cutting that goes on. And they're viewership in primetime is 512,000 people, which again, if they had just put videos of, you know, if I put Master Marlowe Jr. in his cowboy Halloween outfit that he's wearing this year, dancing to the Monster Mash, I mean, I'm pretty sure we'd get 512. I mean, if I put on Thriller, I think we get to a million. The kid can move. That's all I can say. He can move. So it's the so they no one's watching this network and this guy Chris Licht who's uh, basically in charge apparently he's got all these big ideas these great ideas and these ideas apparently still uh, involve getting dominated by Fox uh, by five times the audience and uh, less than half of MSNBC's audience and all the moves he's made so far is not indicating he's going to be making a lot of balance. He has added one slightly right-of-center gun reporter and another sort of anti-gun reporter. But he's got... Uh, that's the only move I can see so far that makes sense. Other than that, he's promoted Jake Tapper, who's pulling in no ratings, as you can imagine. I said this before. I said this on the broadcast. Jake Tapper probably loved, loved being at 4 p.m. and getting passed over by Chris Cuomo. Jeff Zucker put Chris Cuomo in the 9 p.m. slot and not Jake Tapper in a famous battle. And Cuomo didn't do great. And I'm sure that everyone said to Tapper, oh, it should have been you, Tapper. You should have been the guy at 9 p.m. You would have been the one. And uh, he's just getting crushed. He's getting completely torched by Sean Hannity. And uh, even Alex Wagner, who is on MSNBC during that time. And none of you guys know who that is. Maybe that's not true, but very few of you know who Alex Wagner is. But she gets more than double Jake Tapper's ratings. And Rachel Maddow does one day a week uh, in that slot. That's her latest deal with MSNBC. And when she's on, then she gets more than four times the audience Tapper gets. So that was her big move. Let's put the guy, the most smug guy in all of media, who conservative media has already rejected, and let's just bump him up into a slot that's more important. 
you almost love to see it. You almost love to see the, the failures happen. Another fun one in the media front that's going around is the Washington Post has acknowledged that it was a mistake for the New York Times cry bullies to complain so much and whine when Tom Cotton put out that op-ed in 2020 where he said there needs to be a show of force in our cities during the summer of love. So Tom Cotton, who is combat veteran, Harvard-educated, seated senator, quite popular, wrote a pretty mainstream column, at least as far as conservative ideas go, in the New York Times in 2020 about how the law and order has gotten out of control in our cities and we need a show of force. The New York Times added a headline to it that's called Send in the Troops, which was needlessly incendiary. But Tom Cotton didn't write that headline. New York Times did. The opinion page editor, a guy named James Bennett, hadn't read the column and put it up. And woke tarred heads exploded. So then they, uh, the New York Times amended a long, hundreds of words to the top of the article and suggested that they should not have run the piece. It did not meet their standards or they didn't pull it off completely. And they fired James Bennett, the editor. He got kicked off of the paper for this. I wrote about this in Breaking the News, and I think I'm going to post it. I'll post the whole segment today. Because now the Washington Post has said that this was a mistake and that we should have defended James Bennett at the time. Their media blogger, Eric Wemple, who is the world's tallest midget in the establishment media, meaning he's pretty good as far as establishment media goes, but the bar is so unbelievably low that's saying almost nothing. So I, I think there's a lot of re-examining of turning over the entire political party to the woke establishment. Because as the Democrats stare into the abyss of what's going to happen in a week and a half, which everything I'm seeing indicates is going to be a historic bloodbath, figuratively speaking, at the polls. Um, I think they're trying to make sense of where things went wrong. And when you start obsessing over reasonable opinions that are made by seated senators who are quite popular and maybe could one day be president and instead of things as fundamental as free speech and instead of things as fundamental as making sure americans uh, what is the kitchen table issues get prioritized then it could potentially be bad news politically i think there's a lot of soul searching that's going on right now um, left of center one of the most surreal parts of this saga was the New York Times announced after this opinion piece by Tom Cotton came out and caused all this controversy that what they would do is they would add fact checking. They would add new layers of fact checking. It was a non sequitur. It was a non sequitur because the issue wasn't Tom Cotton's facts. It was his opinion. They didn't like his opinion that perhaps it was time for federal agencies to get the cities under control, which as you might recall, and I know this triggers some of you, that there were folks inside of the White House who did not, who recommended that Donald Trump not actually get the cities under control because they thought it would alienate him with black voters. 
So they recommended against law and order, and apparently the recommendation was accepted. Just to note, in terms of the, the historical record. So, uh, a fascinating thing. And then for whatever reason, two years later, and over a year after I roasted everyone involved in my book, Breaking the News, which was well-read, New York Times bestseller, now all of a sudden the Washington Post has decided that they, oh, wow, this was really a big mistake we made. Not defending free speech. So free speech is always got to be the baseline of any major political conversation in this country. Uh, it's almost never is there an issue that doesn't come around to this. What are we free to say? What are we free to debate? Which ideas are somehow verboten? And unless those ideas are truly going to bring violence and threaten the republic... And again, noting a lot of that is now subjective. It is hard to know for sure, based off of the way things are portrayed by the establishment media, which is always agenda-driven, whether or not that's even true. Then you need to try to defend it as best you can. And if that is not our our, uh, culture as a country, then we're going to be in for some trouble here. But it just does feel like now we're starting to see an examining of some of the mistakes that were made by the Democrats. Um, I was fascinated and excited by a comment that Ice Cube made. Yes, Ice Cube, the person with the amazing career going from a group called the NWA. And if you want to know what NWA stands for, cut seven, please, Zach. You can look it up. You can, as my used to say, you can Google it. As his uh, used to say, Google it. I cannot use one of the words on the air at this point. And then he ended up being in children's movies when this unbelievable career pivots of all time. Uh, but he says that black Americans haven't gained much after voting Democrats for decades. No kidding. Here is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is saying to evaluate how Democrats are feeling right now. Cut 10. I can at least say with Latino voters, we've never tried as a party. The Democratic Party has not tried in, in terms of Latino electorates. And I mean, where's our DREAM Act? Where is our immigration reform? And even recently with um, President Biden's uh, marijuana executive order, I very much applaud that he went there, but um, he exempted people who were convicted when the, if they were convicted while they were undocumented. And that is 90%. Hmm. We're looking at the, the overwhelming majority of people who have been convicted that would benefit from that pardon have status, like they have status complications. And so we really need to step up both in our efforts on campaign, but also our efforts in governance. So that's enough for the Latinos. Remember, you have to, it's the only time in the English language you do the pronunciation uh, in a foreign language is Latinos. There's nothing else you do. And remember, didn't she drop the, the Latinxes? Did she ever do Latinx? The Latinxes. The Latinxes. It's only, I only make fun of it because there's not, um, if someone has a German name or if someone has a, we refer to the Italian people, 
the Chinese people. No one attempts to do a different accent. It's only that one word and maybe some um, Latino or Hispanic names where you where you, you add the pronunciation. It's so funny. It's such pandering. It's a it's a signal. It's a signal that she's superior to you. Anyway, um, but she's not satisfied with the way the Democrats have treated Latinos because there's not enough amnesty for illegal aliens, basically. That's like a double amnesty. If you get a DREAM Act and you get off the hook for breaking additional laws like uh, drug laws. So not satisfied that Joe Biden is not allowing the, the lawbreakers to break more laws once they get here. They're only off the hook for the first law they broke, which is coming in the country illegally. Any additional laws, no way. Joe's putting his foot down. Um, so anyway, a lot of blame going around. And why wouldn't there be? The numbers, the data, the polls, they're almost all looking horrible for Democrats. And we've been tracking this quite a bit, needless to say, at Breitbart News. Um, I, I will say that um, we had some coverage of Lisa Murkowski, who was in a debate in Alaska with Kelly Shavaka yesterday. We've got some highlights at Breitbart.com. Um, but she's basically running like a Democrat. Uh, despite the fact that she's supported by Mitch McConnell, which says quite a bit. But she has endorsed Roe versus Wade codification, meaning she would vote for late-term abortions, unlimited abortions, which Shabaka pounced on, calling it extreme because it is. It involves all that horrible stuff, dismemberment, abortions, etc. And Republican Lisa Murkowski is cool with it. So those of you in Alaska, just keep that in mind. Um, Dr. Oz is now leading John Fetterman in the Pennsylvania Senate race. Uh, according to, this is an insider polling. So he's up three in that, and I think it's just going to get worse from there. It was interesting to track the betting markets after the horrific debate that Dr. Oz and um, uh, John Fetterman had for Fetterman, whereas clear Fetterman had no idea where he was, and this was the subject of the broadcast Wednesday. I recommend the Wednesday podcast if you're uh, so inclined to catch up on some of the worst of the key moments. But the betting markets went from it being a 50-50 race to believing it's a 2-1 to chance Oz is going to win, and I think it's only going to go up from there. Giselle Fetterman who Biden refers to as Jell, might actually be the real senator should Fetterman get in there. And she said, historically, swimming in America is very racist. So just know that. So she showed up on a podcast and announced that swimming in America is very racist. So I don't think the Democrat leadership is on the cutting edge that a lot of America is sick of this stuff. Just acting like everything is racist, acting like everything doesn't fit some sort of a woke standard that left-wing Twitter came up with over the last, you know, two or three years. A lot of people are over it. We don't want to talk about if swimming's racist. We want to talk about the uh, price of gas and the price of food and whether or not we're going to be able to get some raises that are going to keep up with inflation, figuring we won't. John Fetterman was asked about uh, abolishing ICE at a event recently, and he has refused to oppose it. So he was um, 
Oh, actually, this is this is oh, this is an unearthed clip. It's almost more fun. So this is from 2018. I'm sorry. So this is a this is not a recent one, but this was a good uh, good good find here. We've got up at Breitbart right now. He was asked about abolishing ICE, Immigration Custom Enforcement, extremely radical, lawless position, and wouldn't wouldn't deny it. Democrat Tim Ryan, the most moderate of all moderates, even though he votes with Pelosi 100% of the time in the Congress, running for Senate in the crucial Ohio race, has refused to commit to opposing illegal alien voting. This one is fresh. Is he is was asked about uh, a he was asked about a ballot issue that involves legal aliens voting, and he says he's not yet reviewed it. That means he doesn't want to comment on it because he doesn't want to say I'm against illegal alien voting because he doesn't want to alienate any potential voters. He can't take a bold stand. And this is what's annoying to me about so many people in leadership in, of both parties, but in particular, basically all Democrats and some of the old guard of the Republican Party, where they won't actually tell you what you believe. Tim Ryan, there's no way he believes that legal aliens should vote. But will Tim Ryan be willing to lie to you about it in order to advance his political career? We know the answer to that. All right, one of the most exciting races is the race for Oregon governor, where Christine Drazen is up by 2% now in a Trafalgar poll. Christine Drazen is a very compelling candidate out there going up against a much less compelling candidate named Tina Kotek. And there's a spoiler in the race, someone named Betsy Johnson, who I'm guessing, and this is this will be a good one to ask the Trafalgar guys when they get here, seems to probably be pulling from Kotech more than um, Drazen, I'm guessing. So because there is a third-party candidate that's pulling in double digits, um, the Republican is ahead in that race, at least according to one poll. When you start playing in places like Ohio, I'm not, not Ohio, Oregon, Washington, New Hampshire, as has been the case, and there's a Rhode Island a congressional seat, there's a few other races out there where in a non-red wave year would be automatic for Democrats. A very, very, very good sign. But how could this be? Because what are the closing arguments the Democrats are making right now? The midterm Akron variant is back, as we talked about on Wednesday. Kathy Hochul running for governor in New York, another race where, again, are we shocked and thrilled that we're talking about the possibility of a Republican winning the governorship in New York? And not to mention, not just any Republican, Lee Zeldin, who's on the broadcast on Patriot constantly and is on this show you know, got to be twice a month, probably. He's on my colleague's shows as well on the network. So the thought that Lee Zeldin can be governor of New York, I mean, you, you would think that's unthinkable. Well, it's not at all. And why not? Because Kathy Hochul is, wants the return of masks for toddlers. Remasking of toddlers. And believes that it should be more socialized. The idea of wearing the mask, which are anti-science. She said that masks protected toddlers in daycare. And now that coronavirus is coming back, that parents should consider masking their children again. And not just masks against coronavirus, masks against other types of viruses as well, respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. I'm sure I mispronounced that. I'm sure I can get scolded by Mrs. Dr. Marlowe later for that one. 
but she just likes the idea of kids having their faces covered despite the fact that it is a another way of control being imposed over the populace the the fact that it did nothing for coronavirus particularly for younger people highly irritating for both child and parent alike and is basically impossible to do because any of you have any toddlers, I mean, they don't want to keep the masks on. Very small percentage of them wear them properly. And I know this because um, there was a a moment, a brief moment. I kept Master Marlowe out of uh, preschool during the vast majority of the pandemic. And it was finally winding down. There was a, a month or so at the end where they were encouraging people to wear masks. And uh, it was absurd. Like you would walk in the classroom, maybe one of the kids would have it on properly. Uh, and of course, my famous favorite one was one kid had a heavy duty painter's mask at one point while I was walking around my neighborhood and he had put on his head like a visor. I love that one because it's kind of stiff. Um, we did not send Master Marlowe with a mask despite requests, just to let you know. And the debate wasn't whether or not to send him with a mask. The debate was whether or not to, you know, object to the other kids wearing masks, um, which I think I did politely on at least one occasion. So, and whether or not to keep him home at all, because it does hurt the development. And we were, that's what we're learning. We're falling behind because of how we handle the schools. And Kathy Hochul's idea is more masks in more situations. And see, people don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about inflation. They want to talk about immigration. They want to talk about the threat of China and fentanyl. And I was sitting around thinking, you know what we need? Those two-year-olds to wear those masks. That would really stop that coronavirus. 21% of black voters now support Republicans. If this continues, if this trend going from single digits with Barack Obama, uh, where Donald Trump made some headway, black voters and now we're over 20 percent and it could go higher i mean there could be the that's existential threat the democrat party they need black voters to vote as a block and if they're not voting as a block if they're behaving as individuals and are open-minded to a different set of viewpoints other than the viewpoints advanced by the woke left who wants the mass kids and doesn't want to drill for our own oil and doesn't like a border and doesn't really is sort of hostile to faith and likes their trimester abortions if all black people as was basically the case under barack obama or go along with that and then now all of a sudden they're waking up that's the expression right stay woke and are starting to vote in a more diverse way this is really as john nolte put it at um Breitbart could be lights out for Democrats. So I, I would love to get a take from some people on the left who have belittled black people for so long and treated them as though they're just a given what they're thinking today, seeing numbers like that. Very exciting. Very, very exciting. Uh, Republicans in Georgia, I'm uh, not Georgia, Arizona are doing well. Carrie Lake is now, according to one poll, leading Katie Hobbs by 11 points. This is the insider polling poll. Is Carrie Lake at 54%. Do you think it was a good decision for Katie Hobbs to avoid democracy by refusing to debate Carrie Lake? 
who is generating just tens of millions of dollars of her media. I mean, she's the hottest ticket in town. Everyone wants to talk to her. Whenever she speaks, she speaks in sound bites because she's a pro broadcaster. And Katie Hobbs, who is going up against her, said she's too extreme for me, the precious Katie Hobbs, to debate. And Katie Hobbs uh, sings all of her sentences and talks like she's 14. Does not generate any earned media at all, unless the people in right-wing talk radio are making fun of her. More closing arguments from the Democrats. Gloria Allred has unearthed a anonymous abortion case accuser for Herschel Walker. So she won't say who this person is, but she said Herschel Walker, I guess, paid for another abortion. Another point. Is uh, tone deaf if that is, if the suggestion is that this is going to prevent people from showing up and voting for Herschel Walker and giving that seat to radical Democrat and eviction landlord Raphael Warnock. It's just not going to happen. And the more anonymous people come out with celebrity lawyers, the better it's going to be for Walker, believe it or not. Ken Falk is on the line. He's a new guest, and it is National First Responder Day as we record this podcast. And we had him on to talk about not just his time in the U.S. Navy as a bomb disposal tech, but since then, he has done a lot of work to advocate on behalf of first responders, particularly those who have either gone through some sort of physical or mental torment, as so many of them do. And he talks not just about what his experience was in combat, but also some things that we can apply to our personal lives when we go through traumas ourselves. It's just a fascinating conversation with, it seems like a genuinely great person. So let's hear from Ken Falk. Today is a special day. It's National First Responder Day. And we have a guest on the line to talk about first responders, Ken Falk, who is the founder and CEO of Boulder Crest Foundation. You can go to bouldercrest.org to find out about what we're about to talk about. But he's a 21-year combat veteran. It's amazing. U.S. Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal, the EOD community. And he's a retired Master Chief Petty Officer and has done a lot of activism on behalf of combat veterans since then. And Ken, it's great to have you on the broadcast. And thanks so much for all you do. Good morning. Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, first of all, before we get into National First Responder Day, uh, it's how did your did you know that you were hardwired to be able to do decades of combat experience? Because that just for me is so foreign to me. It's just that sounds like the level of bravery is physical bravery. Uh, I guess I've got some like emotional bravery, but I can't imagine putting myself in harm's way physically day in and day out for so long. Uh, did you know you were special in that way when you were younger? Um, I, you know, I, I, out of truth, I don't, I don't feel special. I mean, anyway, I, I, I had a you know great childhood. I grew up just outside of uh, 
uh, of the Beltway in Washington, Alexandria, Virginia, and you know all my childhood mentors, including my my scoutmaster, was a special forces guy in Vietnam. You know, we're Vietnam aged uh, guys, and World War II veterans, and you know bosses, and and all that. And I just at some stage in the game, my life wasn't going anywhere, and I thought, well, these guys all seem to make it big, and the military seemed to have a huge impact on them. I got to try the same. Um, and then I, you know, then I became a bomb disposal guy. My dad thought I was nuts, and and um, <laughs> and and it became, you know, it just became a great career. And one thing about the military, I think that's that, you know, I don't think a lot of people that haven't served understand is that, you know, we do, you know, the best training in the world. And then you train for competence and confidence, and you know, at that point in time, it's up to you to be motivated to go out and do the job. And it's, um, you know, and it's a great country to defend. So, you know, it's it's it's. I don't feel special in any way, but I I, I do feel like the military did did a great job on me. Uh, that's amazing. And I'm sure that there's a lot that you learned that you can apply to normal life, not just bomb disposal. Were there any key takeaways that you would recommend? Because I think a lot of people are struggling right now. I don't think our schools are uh, instilling some of those values that people need to make it in the, in, in, uh, in the working world these days. Is there anything that springs to mind that you would recommend anyone in the audience who's looking for a little help these days? Well, it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, working on this like audio book slash uh, uh, video book uh, for kids on, on character. And, and I think yeah. the military is the last place in the world that teaches it. I don't think anybody teaches character anymore. And, um, and it's, and it's, you know, it's about becoming a good person. And, you know, I mean, look, listen, we have our share of, of, of bad people that get through the military process and don't do well. But at the end of the day, the majority of them are, are great Americans. And that's, that's a great place to go. You know, if you're struggling and trying to figure out which direction in life, I tell everybody that U.S. Navy made me the man I am today, and it's, and it is applicable. I'm, I'm, I'm not doing any bomb disposal work. I'm taking care of wounded soldiers and first responders now, and it's, there's just a lot of life lessons that come out of the military that are really powerful. I find that everyone's a critic these days, and everyone is scrutinizing what everyone else is doing and looking for ways to cut people down, attack people. And people aren't always incorrect when they're that level of analytical. And I feel like if you have high character, people know you to be a person of integrity and character, then you're actually free to make mistakes and people will forgive you for them and they'll give you the benefit of the doubt in a lot of cases. And when you have bad character and people feel like you are exploitive and you're not uh, empathetic and you're not. Uh, giving to others or sensitive to others and you're not hardworking, then I don't think you get the benefit of the doubt. So I, I just think it's sort of a 360 win to start with that as the basic premise. I'm going to approach life with, I'm going to try my best at everything and try to be an upstanding person regardless of my circumstances around me. It just seems like such a basic thing, but is so underemphasized right now. Yeah, no, I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, at the end of the day, we've got to be comfortable with the, with the person we look at in the mirror and it's, and, and I think when you start there, you know, then then all those other things come together, and and uh, and it's the most important. My dad used to say the only two things you know you leave behind on this earth are uh, are your children and your reputation. And I think your reputation is built by your character. And uh, you know, if you're going to leave those two things behind, you know, they might as well be good, right? <laughs> W wonderful points. Last one on you personally, and then I want to talk about first responders in general, is uh, bomb disposal in particular. It is That sounds incredibly intense. And how did you, why were you drawn to that in particular? Uh, what made you think that that was where you're going to pursue your, your career? Well, you know, in the Navy, we have three elements of our diving community. We have divers that, you know, work on 
you know, wrecks and salvage and those types of things, uh, work on the bottom of ships. We have uh, bomb disposal divers, guys that clear mines out of the ocean. And then we have uh, SEALs who use diving really just to get in and out of, you know, to do their missions. And um, and I actually enlisted in the Navy to be a, a, a SEAL. And I got to boot camp and I failed the eye test. And, um, and the guy that was recruiting me into the SEAL team said, uh, well, why don't you go EOD? And I said, what's that? And he said, bomb disposal. And this guy was an old Vietnam era SEAL, just a character. And I said, bomb disposal. I said, man, that sounds dangerous. And he said, yeah, it is. I wouldn't do it either. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I, always, I was always drawn to diving. I grew up as a kid watching Jacques Cousteau and, uh, and, and Sea Hunt and all, all those things. And, and, uh, and I was just drawn to diving. And, and, you know, I was a good swimmer in school and just, it just pulled me in. And, and I've, just had a great career it was amazing uh it how much of the bomb disposal was there in in movies whenever there's bomb disposal it's always a ticking clock and you're always about to get you know blown sky high um but how much of it is that something that you know world war ii era we discovered it somewhere and it's there's no timetable we just got to figure it out and how much of it is there's actually an element of if we don't deal with this quickly this could be a major problem yeah, you know, the, the, the time stuff, I mean, it, don't get me wrong, terrorists have used timed devices, you know, all over the world. But um, for the most part today, the most sophisticated things are kind of radio controlled or cell phone controlled. And that was kind of the big threats in Iraq and Afghanistan. Right. Those are really, really challenging, uh, you know, because you're walking down on something and you don't know where the bad guy is with the trigger. And it's um, it's just super, super hard. And, and um you know, and it's not about cutting the red wire. It's about, you know, separating components so that they don't, you know, that may, maybe some of them go boom, but the bigger ones don't. And and uh, and that's really what, what it's all about. And, and, you know, guys train on it every day for different types of, of, of devices, whether they're the kind of devices that go off when you step on them or the ones that are, you know, remote controlled, either with a wire or a radio signal and and uh, and those are the ones that are challenging, uh, probably the most challenging. And the hardest thing about bombs is finding the darn things. And once they're found, I mean, we're pretty wow. pretty good at taking them apart. But one, you know, these these guys hide them, and you know, and I mean, even think back to the Boston bombing. I mean, the way it was hidden in a backpack. Who would think backpacks? Yeah. Are just, you know, uh, so yeah. How would you have ever known until it was way too late? Uh, it, it, do you have any s- stories where you were trying to disarm? a bomb and it was really particularly challenging and, and scary perhaps Does anything spring to mind? You know, for me, the, I went to Bosnia with the British. I did a two year exchange tour with the British uh, bomb disposal. And at one time, you know, the British and the Israelis were probably the best and only the best in the business because they had the biggest threats, the IRA and, you know, the stuff going on in Israel. And, 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 um, but you know, I would put our American guys up against anybody today. They, they disarmed thousands, actually probably hundreds of thousands of bombs in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, but you know, I was in Bosnia with the British and, and you know, these, again, these things are just hard to find, you know, you're on your belly and you're probing the earth at, in the middle of the night, trying to get in, you know, get some special forces guys in to do their mission, but you got to clear a path for them to go. And those are the things that kind of make, make you pucker a little bit, you know, as you're, as you're laying there, just trying to wow. find the it's the I, I have a friend who's on a bomb squad of a major police force in the country. I won't point it out because I want to. I don't want to narrow the field too much. Um, but the he. It sounds like for him, most of his job is false alarms. Most of the time, is this is someone calls in something or some crazy person is threatening something, and it turns out to be not much. I, I imagine that there is less of that in in your line of work. But how much time is wasted for people who are you know highly trained and highly skilled? 
and you know should be saving lives but end up kind of getting jerked around for some reason or another yeah no it's a good point and and you know thank god you know america america is not under a big bombing attack and you know i mean I mean, I remember when I was in school back in the 60s and 70s, kids would call in bomb threats on Friday just to get out of school early. I mean, it's, you know, what the disruption that that causes. I mean, it scares everybody. Yes. You don't know. You know, threats are, are you never real. Know. Right. You never know. Um, and I spent, after the Navy, I, I ran a, a counterterrorism training business, and I've trained a lot of state and local bomb disposal guys. And one of the things we worked on was really understanding threat assessments and trying to be able to narrow them down. So, you know, so they didn't have to waste their time because, you know, bomb squads, even in major cities, bomb squads are small. I mean, you're talking, you know, maybe in the bigger cities, L.A., New York, 30, 40 guys. But in, in small cities, um, you know, maybe four guys that are on the bomb squad. And it's uh, it's it's just it's hard to, 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 to waste their, their their time when, you know, real things are happening. Uh, do you have a family, Ken? I do. I have a wife. I've been married for almost 40 years and uh, two daughters and four grandkids. What did they think of your career choice? Because I, my wife is very, very supportive. And if I told her my calling is to disarm bombs in the Middle East, I, I have a feeling it would be, it'd be a very angry and short conversation. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've got you know super supportive wife. She's been amazing. Forty years we've been married. There used to be a joke in the EOD community that stood for everyone's divorce and. Uh, <laughs> And most most of my friends, you know, have gone that path, but we've made it, you know. And Julia, my wife's from England. I mean, she grew up dodging IRA bombs, walking across. Wow, wow. You know, and and you know those types of things, you know. And and it's it's she's she's been very supportive. And the kids, you know, my my two daughters, I, I think if you asked them today, they would probably say uh, they loved the military life because they moved all over. They lived in England. They lived in Bermuda. They lived in Virginia beach. They lived in San Diego. They lived in some great places and have a great culture and not, neither of them are afraid to, you know, get on a plane and travel. And, and, and I think, you know, the military does that, uh, for kids. And, and I think during the time, you know, we, we had made a goal as a family to try to be settled so the kids could go to the same high school, but Uh you know, in 21 years we moved 13 times. So it's, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, it, I think uh, what really struck me in what you just said is talking about her upbringing, how extreme violence was a part of her life as a child. And that's one thing that's interesting to me is that I grew up in West L.A. and there was I, I got into one fight at school, Ken, and, and, and I won handily and I retired. So I'm retired 1-0. Uh, in terms of in terms of street fights for also I, I have no this is why so there was no element of this in my life and that's just why it's, it's so foreign to me that you could be th- that level of supportive but I credit to you and your wife and your whole family and uh, it's a great story bouldercrest.org for Ken's group he's the founder and CEO of Bouldercrest Foundation you're here to talk about National First Responder Day not just your backstory uh, I want to talk about your passion something you've really dedicated your life to uh, which is trying to help fellow combat veterans and their family members, uh, both with uh, training and transitioning and uh, technologies, pretty much a 360 wounded warrior care. Um, give us some background and talk about uh, for these first responders that are most important to you. Yeah. Well, for, first of all, you know, I'll tell you, I, my dad was a cop. My dad got out of the Army in 1960 and went to Washington, D.C. to become a cop and was a cop during the worst times of, of, of well, maybe the worst times of Washington, D.C. in the 60s. And, uh, and, and so I grew up as a son of a cop, which, you know, that kind of starts, starts it all. And, and my whole family had served in the military, and then I did. And, 
it just became natural after we got out of the, out of the Navy. We, I was running this, this, this counterterrorism business and a friend of mine was in Iraq and one of his soldiers had lost both of his legs to an IED and called me and asked me if I'd meet the family at the hospital. I get to the hospital and there's no family there. And, and early in the war, the government wasn't paying for families to travel to the hospitals. And my wife and I did. We ended up paying out of our, you know, personal money to get this guy's wow. mom to, to the hospital. And, you know, as a veteran of the first Gulf War, I'm thinking, well, this thing's going to be over in three three months. And anyway, we ended up doing that about 11 more times. And finally, we started this charity that today is known as the EOD Warrior Foundation. I'm no longer the chairman of the board, but, uh, but you know, we, we founded it and started it and ran it and raised a lot of money over the years to help severely wounded EOD troops. And... Um, and then when I sold my company, um, I took a year off, went and did a master's degree at Georgetown at 50 years old. I was the oldest guy in, in Georgetown. And because and, I had this kind of vision of maybe going into the Pentagon and working on Wounded Warrior Care because it was so bad, uh, the government's sure. approach to it. And, um, and I took this year off at, at Georgetown, and, and that was just started to be the worst year in Afghanistan for, for amputees. We had, just in the bomb disposal community, we had 71 amputees in a year, 52 weeks. So about every four or five days, I was going to the hospital and meeting a new young guy who had lost his legs or his arms, and and, uh, and, and then their families. And their parents, his, most of these young guys, their, their, their parents were my age, and you know, it was it was tight. It's tight quarters in a hospital room. The amputees would be in inpatient care for maybe up to three months, uh, four months, and then they'd outpatient for another year or two. So these families were, you know, separated from their homes for long periods of time. So my wife and I started bringing them out to our home. We're about an hour west of, excuse me, of D.C. in Bluemont, Virginia. And one thing led to another. We had a big 200-acre farm, and we donated 37 acres and built the nation's first, uh, basically the first privately funded wellness center for, for combat veterans and their family, and that's what Boulder Crest, Virginia is. And then we were going along. Our biggest donor was the Clark family of uh, Clark Construction, and Mr. Clark passed away and left us $10 million, and, and we opened up a second facility in southern Arizona in 2017. And uh, and then I was at a board meeting the day after the Vegas shootings, and one of my board members, a retired uh, Army general, said, you know, what are we doing for first responders? And we had had a lot of first responders come through the program because so many first responders are former military guys. And I think it's like 30 percent of, of cops on the street have a military background. And, and so we had had a lot of cops through the program. And um and but we didn't have a specific law enforcement program, and that's what we started right after the Vegas shootings. And we had, you know, guys from Parkland who had come through, uh, first responders from Newtown, uh, Connecticut shootings that had come through, the disco down in Orlando. We've had, you know, some of these high-profile cases. But you know, the truth is, and and what everybody needs to know, especially today on on First Responders Day, is that these guys every morning they put their lives on the line for us, and and. And that we just thought it was the least we could do. And and then this year, uh, we've been working down in Miami with Miami police departments, about 37 different police departments in the Miami region for about a year. And AT&T um, uh, saw what we were doing down there and gave us a million-dollar grant to scale that out to nine other cities around the United States. So we've been working trying to scale what we've done in Miami with the police departments on this, this approach. We call this a struggle-well approach. Um, out to nine other you know states around the united states and we hope that you know we'll continue to get support um if not from at&t from other donors so we can keep this thing going across the country 
Uh, tell me about post-traumatic growth. Yeah, well, you know, it, it was it was intriguing. You know, whenever you say post-traumatic, everybody's waiting for you to say stress disorder or something, you know, something negative. Yes. And this doctor at the University of North Carolina, Rich Tedeschi, um, had coined this term back in 1995. And Tedeschi primarily had studied families who had lost children to cancer to find out that in a natural way, most people grow after trauma, after the grieving process is over. Or there's this there's this opportunity for growth. And I said to Tedeschi when I met him and I looked at his research, I said, do you think we could teach people how to achieve post-traumatic growth in their lives without waiting on this natural thing to occur? And he talked about the prisoners of war in Vietnam. You know, the Vietnam era of soldiers uh, came back from Vietnam. About 30 percent of them came back from Vietnam with PTSD. Only 4 percent of prisoners of war had come back. And with PTSD, and I and I asked Tedeschi, what, you know, what accounted for that? And he said, training. You know, these men were trained in the prison camp. They, they had they had a protocol. They had this whole idea and this mantra about returning with honor, and that there was this whole system that was developed by the senior leaders in these prison camps, so that these men knew that you know this would be a defining moment of their life. And and as a combat veteran, you know, uh, and a guy who's been through training um, on how to behave if you are a prisoner of war, we call SEER school in the military. Uh, I couldn't think of anything worse on the battlefield than being captured and tortured. And not, you know, not like terrorists do today where they, you know, chop your head off 24 hours later or a week later. I mean, these, some of these men were in prison camps for eight years. And, um, and, and I thought, well, if they could do it, we, I mean, all of us can do it. And, and that's kind of what started me down this road was, you know, can we teach people how to achieve post-traumatic growth in their lives? And, and, and what does that really mean? And, you know, the mental health system in this country is broken. And, and it, it's highlighted a lot more, you know, around the veteran causes because I think right. there's so much more PTSD. But at the end of the day, it's, the system in this country is terrible. And, yeah, and, and, and this enter, is where... Yeah, and I want to take this, and there's there's two directions I want to take this. Uh, first yeah. of all, post-traumatic growth, there are a lot of these principles, things we can plan or we can work on in our personal lives. So I was just thinking about uh, when Andrew Breitbart died, our founder, who was my mentor, a close personal friend. I mean, the the question everyone kept asking was basically, what do we do? Like, well, We don't know what to do now. It, it is after the trauma, it, because he had four young kids and he had a wife and he had a business and he was a huge part of the culture. And it was, what do you do? Like, There was a huge thing. Like, what do we do with all this grief and agony that we're feeling? How do we channel it? How do we grow from it? And that was... Uh, of course, you can learn some skills, but I never crossed my mind till that point. So, give us a few. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so and the, the idea of, of of trauma is that after trauma, there's this there's this grieving process, and it, you know, it's, it's very well written and and very under understood. And and once that grieving process is, it, once you're going through that grieving process, if you do certain things, at, you know. Uh, during that process, you can actually learn from them and become a better version of yourself. There's a one of my favorite books is written by a guy named Viktor Frankl, who's a Holocaust survivor, who wrote this book called Man's Search for Meaning. And this whole idea is that no matter how bad the trauma is, that 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 we can, in fact, um, uh, become a better version of ourselves from learning from this adversity. It's this whole idea that you know the forging of 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 a human and 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 that. You know, the, the the more adversity one might take, the, the stronger you become. Like the, the, you know, the heating up metal and 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 the forging of a of a sword, let's say. So 
that's what we teach. And, and, and you know, the outcomes of post-traumatic growth are, you know, things like a greater appreciation for life. We've seen death. We've seen grief. We've seen trauma up close. So now that I understand that maybe mortality is real in my life, that I have a greater appreciation for my life because I know, I always tell people, you know, today's the first day of the rest of our lives. We have this choice, you know, to become a warrior or a victim and how you, how you go down the rest of your life and, and understand that starts with, you know, having an appreciation for, for small things. Amazing. Um, re- relationships that become closer, you know, it's, uh, you, you see this a lot. Um, you know, one of the, one of the tragedies in the first responder and military worlds is suicide. And, you know, you see a lot of families that suffer with suicide where the, where, where the relationships, you know, go away, right? The, the, they get divorced and they're blaming each other. And But, you know, when you see post-traumatic growth, these relationships come closer and the families get closer and they get stronger. And that's really what post-traumatic growth uh, uh, suggests is that we can we can have personal strength. We can see new possibilities. Um and 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 that you know spiritually uh, you know even in a non-religious sense spiritually that that we we've had this awakening there's there's something bigger than us on this earth and we're here for a reason and once we understand that reason then we can have you know a purpose and a mission again and 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 go on with our lives and and you see this over and over and over again when you when you talk to people who have have suffered severe trauma uh, so let me ask you, you mentioned something which is really important. Uh, are, are we dealing with this at a national level enough? I, I imagine the answer is no. Uh, and, and where is, where should the discussion go? Is this something that is done at a government level? Is it done at a charity level? Uh, what is the formula from your vantage point? But I, I, I know you're going to say that we're not talking about these issues the right way and often enough. Uh, but what right. do we do? What do you see as the solutions? Well, I see. You know, here's you know where where I was kind of going a minute ago, Alex. Here, here the issue is that whenever somebody is stressed in this world, and we push them into a mental health system, um, I always tell people we're 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 basically we might as well send them to prison because once you're in that system, it's very difficult to get out. You know, you get labeled, you get medicated, and and most of the time. I think the percentage is super high of the amount of people that go to mental health care that, that don't have mental health issues. They're just dealing with the stress of life. And it's stressful. You know, I mean, the last two and a half years has been more stressful, you know, for most Americans than ever. And 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 once you get a label, once you get into the system, you depre- you got depression or you've got anxiety, the things that are, you know, we would consider to be normal in life um, end up becoming, you know, these long-term challenges that that are difficult to get out of so we've been we've been lobbying congress and 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 the va specifically and you know having some initial conversations now with the department of justice on how how can we do a better job of triaging mental health care so when people are stressed that we don't stick them straight into a system that's that's broken and 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 give them a label and, and you know um and the best they ever think they can become is 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 maybe what they were. You know, we want we want people to understand that we want to learn from these traumas and become a better a better version. I, I give you one great example in the, in the, the world of school shootings. There's a group of families from the Newtown, Connecticut shootings, and this is what post traumatic growth really is. Who every time there's a school shooting in this country, get on airplanes and go there to be with others. And that's, you know, that to me is, is, is what has to happen is that we've got to get to a place where, yes, we can't change the past, 
in, in many cases with trauma, the past sucks, but we can change the future and we can become a better version of ourselves. So that's that's what I've been trying to lobby, especially up on the Hill, is, is really to try to get lawmakers understand that this isn't about getting more mental health people in this country. It's about coming up with a better system. And, you know, we're up against, yes. uh, you know, American Psychological Association, Psychiatric Association. These are associations that are, you know, that are self-serving. And, you know, when you go talk to them about what the problem is, that there's not enough mental health professionals. Well, in the country of India, we've been working with a doctor up at Harvard. In the country of India, they have 5,000 mental health professionals for a billion people. Their most effective programs in that country are peer-led, which is what Boulder Crest does. We have peer-based programs. In this country, 300 million people, 330 million people, we have 500,000 mental health professionals. And if you ask them what we need, the answer is more. <laughs> and and it's not sustainable. It's just not – and we've got to come up with a better system. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. There are people that need mental health care. But the average person, the average cop who's involved in a shooting, the average soldier who sees his buddy die on the battlefield, they're not having mental health issues. They're, they're having natural reactions to the stress of life. And that's that's what that's where I get so passionate and frustrated with sure. the system. Because, you, you know, you stick these guys in eight, eight of the 10 antidepressant and anti-anxiety medications have suicide as a side effect. And I told you I'm a bomb disposal guy. I'm not a mental health professional. But why would you put that in your body if if if, if you're already considering suicide and you're already depressed? Why would you put this medicine in your body? Yeah, I, I am. I'm all for therapy and I'm all for Western medicine, but clearly we've never had more pharmaceutical usage and more therapy and we all seem to be more depressed than ever. So it's the, it's, it's time to reconsider some outside the box thinking, which is exactly what you're doing um, with Boulder Crest and two parter to round this out and Ken Falk, it's really a pleasure to speak to you as you can tell I'm really enjoying it. Um, Just tell me a little bit about National First Responder Day, how the initiative started, and then I want to hear about how people can support you in your work yeah well you know i think we do a great job in this country of trying to recognize people i mean i, I tell people i talked to a friend of mine this morning who's a cop and we were talking about it and talking about me being on your show and i just said you know in our mind every day is like national first responder day i mean these these poor guys you know i mean defund the police you know all this stuff that's like you know you got to understand where people are coming from and 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 you know so for for the country to honor people on a day veterans day first responder day these days are important because i think they do give us the opportunity to highlight some of the issues and like i said i mean it's you know whether whether it's cops or firefighters or emts on the street or 911 operators um you know these these are our nation's heroes these are the people that every single day put a uniform on and put their lives on the line for us and they don't know if they're coming back at night you know, in the military, we go on a deployment and, you know, six months, nine months. I mean, during Iraq and Afghanistan, some of the soldiers were deploying for up to 15 months. And the families knew there was a chance people weren't coming back. But cops don't have that. They get they put their gun belt on, they put their vest on, and they go out the door. And, you know, their family thinks they're coming back that night. But they don't know. I mean, and you've seen, you've seen on the streets of uh, assassinations of cops. And, and and that's why I think this, this community is so important to this, you know, to the security of this nation. Um, and, and, uh, and, and, I, and I'm just glad that there is a day where, where nationally we can recognize them. And, and our goal, you know, at Boulder Crest is to recognize them every day, but, but today more than ever. And, um, and we're a nonprofit, you know, we're a hundred percent privately funded and, um, and every dollar helps and, 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 um, and so people can you know, donate and they can support you just go to bouldercrest.org and they can get involved. Yes, sir. That's it. 
Wonderful stuff. Ken Falk, founder and CEO of Boulder Crest Foundation. Just uh, what an example. And I think the audience feels really blessed you could join us this morning. Oh, thanks, Alex. I appreciate you sharing the story. It's exciting to have Robert Cahaley on, senior strategist and pollster of the Trafalgar Group. Trafalgar was maybe the best pollster in 2016, which gave them a lot of prominence. And since then, I think they've been one of the polls that I've looked to the most to get a sense of where the country is at. And they inform a lot of the content in the opening of the show. And so it's good to give them some credit where it's due, the trafalgargroup.org, if you want to support them. Uh, but Robert explains some of the differences in polling now than what we saw a few years ago and why he's able to beat the establishment media so often. It's insightful stuff. Let's hear it. Robert, great to have you on the show. Hey, it's good to be back. Uh, let me talk to you about, first of all, when you guys started at Trafalgar, because it feels like last couple election cycles, um, I, I see your polls more than any other poll, but it, it feels kind of new. I mean, when when was the first, what was the first year you guys really took off? Uh, the first year that we, we started doing polling was 2008, and the first year that we received any kind of uh, prominence was 2016, and uh, we we got a lot of attention when we started kind of being a real uh, outlier to everybody else. And then uh, since then, polling was just a very small part of what we did. I would say less than five percent of what we're doing. And uh, since then, it's become uh, all of what Trafalgar does now. So tell me about what the group originally was meant to do and how you kind of became a one of the more credible pollsters around. Well, um, it was more just that we we were I've been doing general consulting and stuff like that and just became very dissatisfied around 08 with the kind of polling that we were getting. I just didn't feel like it was very good. Um, I felt like it 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 it, it lacked a uh, a certain understanding of how people actually were, and um, I felt like we could just we could do a better job. And so we use a lot of what we we we, we had had picked up uh, and working with some other polling companies and looking at how they did what they did, and and said I think we can build a better mousetrap. And um, so that's what we did uh, from 2008 to. So at 16, we were doing this for a lot of our clients and, and a lot of others uh, as we were doing, you know, our regular consulting work. And um, and then, you know, in 2016, we, just for the fun of it, in, in the uh, South Carolina primaries, we, we started doing a tracking of the uh, the races and people started noticing that it, it, it was, it looked more reliable than what they were seeing on the a lot of the, the polling out there and we got this strange call from these guys said this thing called real clear politics they said hey we'd like to talk to you about what you do and how you do it and uh, we talked for about an hour one day and they they became satisfied with our system and we showed us stuff and they said they, they would list it and and then we were out there and people started seeing it and you know when it turned out we were 
a lot more accurate than everybody else in 2016, and and we just you know, just blew blew the doors off with an error rate uh, below. I think 2016 was below two error rate. It, it really got a lot of people's attention, and you know since then we've had the lowest error rate of any any of the national firms at all that that, that hold multiple states and every given election. Why do you think it is that the establishment pollsters have been uh, on such a bad run? Uh, they really just seems like almost random uh, how they do things. It just seems like they do such a poor job um, uh, overall. Is it, are, are they bubbled politically? Is it are they asking, approaching their questions in a way that's dated? Uh, I'm not asking you with the full secret sauce, but maybe give a little insight into what they're doing that well, you guys it are. It is kind of all the above. You know, I, I look at it very much like I compare it to like banks. You know, 30 years ago, all the banks worked a certain way. People, you know, came in, made their deposits, and made their withdrawals. And then technology started to change. And so then there were things like you could do it over the phone. And then there were AT, you know, there were ATMs, and and then there were apps. And so whether it's an ATM or app doing it over the phone or going to the branch, uh, the banks have, have kind of adjusted and to people's level of comfort with technology and privacy, and they give the person who has to come in to make the deposit all the way to the person who doesn't mind taking a picture of a check from the app, and they cater to all of them. And why has the polling industry not done that? Well, the banks have done that because that's what it took to survive, but since there's no punishment for getting it wrong in the polling system. Nobody goes out of business. But they haven't adjusted. They haven't kept modern. And recognizing that people's lives are very, very different than they were 30 years ago. But they're still using the same models. And, you know, people aren't just sitting around with nothing to do in the parlor waiting on the phone to ring anymore. And you have to recognize that. People don't have time for long questionnaires. Uh, you, you can't just – this, this – op- Operation the way they mostly call people in the afternoon when they're you know, in the middle of having dinner and they've got kids running around to you know the little league practice and, and 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 singing lessons and all that kind of stuff and people are busy and so they just don't you know they don't recognize how busy they are in life uh, they don't recognize that people respond in different methods and so I mean you literally have a national major national news network who does all their stuff with live calls and so my question is how many gen z's and millennials do they get on the phone who answer the phone verbally and then take 42 questions i would argue they don't get any normal people who do that that are in those two age groups so who are they talking to yeah, it's a great and fairly obvious question, and it's kind of shocking to me. It seems like you might be the only person who's figured it out. Robert Cahaley's with me. He is a senior strategist and pollster for Trafalgar Group, which is maybe the most reputable poll now and kind of came out of nowhere and I think filling a space that uh, the establishment, both academic and media institutions, just have not filled for whatever reason. It, it is interesting because I use a landline typically at home and I frustrate everyone that they have to remember two phone numbers. You know, it's the it's the people that have already moved on to the cell phone world and 
Um, it used to be that no one would call you during dinner because that was considered rude. Now I feel like I only get calls during dinner because people know that I'm not going to be distracted with something else like, uh, like work or I won't be out or something. It feels like people's behaviors just change and societal norms change, but yet the polling methods stay the same for whatever reason. So good for you for trying to expand on that. Um, is there any way that framing the questions has changed? Have you noticed if oh, Republicans are, yeah, 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 yeah. Give us some of the, um, give, give us some commentary here. Well, first of all, it's the long questionnaires. That's number one question we get. How long is this going to take? How long is this going to take? And so this old model of, oh, just 20 minutes of your time, people hang up. You know, if you're on the way home and you needed three items from the grocery store, but you know, you could have lived without them. You didn't have to have them tomorrow to survive. Stop at the grocery store, and there's a lot of 20 people in every register to check out, and you got three things you really don't need. You're leaving. You're not going to wait in those lines. But if a lot of but two people, yeah, you might stay. So everybody makes a cost-benefit analysis about their time. So. We're, we do much shorter questionnaires, and we tell you up front, hey, can you, know, can you uh, we've got a quick three-question uh, poll, a five-question poll, a seven-question poll, a two-minute poll. If you tell them up front, it's going to be short, and more likely, they're more likely to participate. When we send a text or email or some other method, we tell them you have 48 hours to do it. So you have to do it right now. You know, we all scroll back through our text messages and go, oh, yeah, yeah, that thing. I need to call that guy. I need I got to get back to her. Oh, I've got to do that poll. And, and it's very much like that. And so when we let you take it at your convenience, people are a lot more likely to participate. Uh, so so we make it convenient and easy if, if it's on the spot and convenient and easy if you want to take time and take it in a different time and just give you kind of a window you need to do it by. Do you see that Republicans are less likely to reply to polls because oh I'm sure... Oh, my God, yes. Yeah, because I'm, I'm sure that I, I think people who pay close attention know that you're trying to give everyone a, a fair shot, but overall, I do feel like, like my audience, a, a big resentment towards everyone associated with most of the mainstream polls. Um, so well, there's no question, and it's changing. Uh, and, I, and I say this is very different than it was in '16. In '16, they were shy. In '16, they were shy. They'll take the poll, and um, a lot of Republicans will tell you they were for Trump. But in '16, we're talking about general election here. Um, but there were some we called the shy Trump voters, and we used a little vehicle called the neighbor question. So we'd say, "Okay, I understand you're for Hillary, but how do you, how do you think most of your neighbors are voting?" And that's a projection device that lets them give you an answer. Uh, the guy who taught me how to do that, that was one of the things I learned from an old pollster named Rob, Rod Sheely, who passed on. He was somebody in, uh, in South Carolina, was a contemporary of Lee Atwater. Uh, and I grew up doing politics in South, in South Carolina, learned that from him. He said, you got to give people a polite way to tell you something impolite uh, that they think make you, you know, uncomfortable. Uh, so that was one. Uh, in 2020, it was just cancel culture was going on. If you had a, held a view outside of the mainstream, uh, people were, you know, they, they were very hesitant to participate. They just were like, hey, you know, I don't want to do it. The polls have been really wrong in 2016. So 
when you were calling Republicans the kind of people who couldn't wait to take a poll, where they never Trumper types. And so most of the pollsters got it wrong because they were easy to get on the phone. So if they didn't have a preset idea of what that looked like, if they didn't understand going into that, that was only going to be about 11%, 12% of the, of the Republican electorate, then they were oversampling them because they were easy to poll. You had to work a lot harder uh, to, to dig deep to get enough Republicans that represented the average Republican. In 2022, it is totally different. Since Biden's speech, there are people who are absolutely petrified. They've wow. seen the FBI talking to Facebook. They've seen all this stuff going down with uh, the government telling banks to let them know what transactions are for guns. And what they tell us is, well, the, I mean, this is what they tell us. Like, whether you know it or not, the government is going to, they're monitoring all these polls and they're using, and they're keeping track, and they're making a list of the MAGA people. And if you self-identify on one of these polls, you're going to make that list. And that, that's what a lot of them are saying. And, and it was interesting because we never had this happen until after Biden's speech, you know, with his little uh, 1984 speech there with the uh, red background. But we had six people contact us and say, hey, here's a, it was a screenshot or a recording. It's a, hey, um, this is a poll. It said it was y'all. I wasn't sure. I didn't know whether this was really your company. Wow. Um, and in all six cases, it was us. It absolutely was us. We verified, yes, it was us. Yes, we did call your number. But they were that nervous. because, And so I call these people submerged voters. They're not shy. Uh, they're not hidden. They're submerged. They, they are not taking polls. They're not putting signs from the yard, not putting stickers on the car. They're not uh, saying anything on social media. They're calling talk radio, and they're not telling their friends or colleagues how they vote. You know, y you could be the most progressive liberal and have a submerged conservative next door, and you'd never know it. You'd never know it. They, but they're going to vote. They are underwater, below periscope depth, but they are going to vote. But, you, but they are going to be unrepresented in everybody's polls, including ours. Everyone will underestimate the Republican turnout. Everyone. Wow. Yeah, that, that was kind of my thought. And I, I want to know what percentage you think that is likely to be. But, Robert, I'm running short on time. I would love to have you back on next week. And I want to talk about some of the individual races if you're up for it. But just give me one thing that you think is a sleeper race that's going to be a lot more exciting than maybe people are anticipating right now in your, in your best guess. Well, I can just kind of, it, it's kind of two, and these are the two that we are the ones that got the national conversation started about both of them, uh, New York governor and um, Washington, uh, U.S. Senate. Uh, nobody was paying attention to these races uh, six weeks ago, and we started, we saw all the things that reminded us of uh, New Jersey and said, this time we're going to let people know early we think there's something going on there. Wow, very interesting. And also, uh, we just learned that Robert Menendez is under investigation again, by the way, which is so some New Jersey no news I hadn't gotten to in the broadcast yet, so give me an excuse. The Robert Cahaley, I really appreciate it. If people want to support you or keep an eye on your polls, where should they go? Uh, at, we're, on, we're on Twitter, uh, probably our, our majority of the place, and uh, it is at, at Robert Cahaley, C-A-H-A-L-Y, or at Trafalgar underscore group. 
and we're also on other social media and you can find our website too so yeah and so i'll break not hard to find it pretty much yeah we, out, yeah, we now, outdo a lot of the stuff with Traval it when you google the word now <laughs> yeah it's true you guys are at the top i would say so uh, congrats on all the recent success and i appreciate you actually trying to tell the story of what's going on in this country yes sir y'all take care and you do the same i got american That's today's broadcast. Thanks so much to junior producer Zach Jones, senior producer Greg Evan, and all of you who've told 10,000 friends and family members about the broadcast. We'll talk to you next week. Arsenal.